AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. If you will place your left hand on the Bible and raise your right hand, and please repeat after me, I do solemnly swear. We, the jury in the above entitled action, find the defendant guilty of the crime. It makes no sense. It doesn't fit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. We all took the same oath of office. We are all bound by that common commitment to support and defend the Constitution, to bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and to faithfully discharge the duties of our office. Do you solemnly swear or affirm that the testimony you're about to give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? From Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio, this is Sworn. I'm your host, Philip Holloway. My name is William Michael Dillon. I was arrested for murder on August 26, 1981, for a crime I didn't commit. I was released on November 18, 2008. Thank you for the Keepers of Justice. Took me away when I was a teen. Not really more than a boy just lean. Sent to hell's prison to seal my fate. Only my will to survive. Let me reach that gate. Let me reach that gate. Let me reach that gate. I had to reach that gate. Black robes and lights. Just to serve it will be done. Black robes and lights. Lady Justice lost this one. The song you heard at the beginning of the episode is called Black Robes and Lawyers by William Dillon. 
William is another innocent man who we met through the California Innocence Project. He was convicted after a series of mistakes and misconduct in the legal system. His story caught my attention because of faulty forensic evidence. I'll let him tell you about it. Before I went to prison, I was very shy. When I was released through this journey, got this voice to start talking about the journey. As horrific as it was, it was also inspiring to look back on, like walking through the fire and coming out shinier. When I was wrongfully convicted, I was sitting in Florida State Prison, total hellhole, and I had been put in isolation for being assaulted. They didn't allow me to have anything, so I started writing black ropes and lawyers on the toilet paper with a little plastic bendable pen that they gave me. It wasn't a song, it was sort of like a testament to the fact that nobody was listening to me, so I felt that this was a way to speak it out. My journey started in 1981. I was 20 years old, six days away from being 21 and I was arrested for murder of a man on a beach. My brother parked. We were checking out the waves. Detectives came up to the car, told us they were investigating a murder. A man had been beaten on a beach. I told them that I didn't have anything to do with it and didn't know anything about it, other than the fact that it happened over on over that side over there. And to that point, they began to ask me to get out of the car. I told them that I had a prior engagements, whatever, that we needed to go. And they said, well, okay, that's fine. Can you come back tomorrow at the sheriff's office? I said, sure, no problem. And that was basically just to get out of there. I wasn't involved and I didn't want to be involved in it personally. Days passed. I had forgotten all about our interview. And next thing you know, seems that the police had come down to a beach a few miles north of that beach to where my brother was and asked him if he had seen me. I show up there a little while later and he says, Bill, the police were here. I called them and I told them where I was and within a matter of minutes, they were coming with sirens blaring, came in all the exits and says, we have to take you downtown. I was a little, little scared about it, but I went with them. They questioned me. Of course, I really didn't know a lot of the answers. I'm answering questions of 10 days prior. And one of them, where were you? I honestly didn't know. So I gave them a bunch of places that I might've been. It just so happens that I frequented a bar that was across the street of the place where the man was killed. I see instances like this in my work all the time. Innocent people who talk to the police because they've got nothing to hide, at least in their mind, but unwittingly, they wind up giving authorities incriminating information anyway, even if they had nothing at all to do with the case. The advice I give to people is not to talk to the police, ever. Just don't do it. Hell, even the police will tell you it's in your best interest not to talk to them. It's counterintuitive. People think that if they talk to the police, they can prove their innocence. But I've seen over and over again, people give away information that just happens to connect them with a crime, even one they didn't commit. Things like in William's case, going to a bar nearby, knowing that the crime took place at all, or even knowing someone distantly connected to the case. 
If you give the police, or any government authority for that matter, the kind of information that even remotely connects you to a crime or even the area of a crime, then suddenly you are involved. There are no consequences, however, if you refuse to talk to the police. You have an absolute right to remain silent. It's a constitutional right. It's one that our servicemen and women have fought and died for for generations. The police know this, judges know this, and juries are not ever even told if someone exercises their right to remain silent. Next thing you know, she says, can you sign this piece of paper? So I looked at the paper, make sure it wasn't a confession of any kind, and it was some sort of agreement to do something or whatever that didn't involve me in my mind. So I signed the paper. She told me, oh, before you go, we don't need this paper. Go ahead and wad it up and throw it in the trash can. So I took the paper and wadded it up, threw it in the trash can. She says, no, wad it up real good. So I took both my hands and balled it up like a baseball. 10.30 that night, the police came back. They knocked on the door and my dad answered the door. They said, we have some questions for your son. If he passes these tests, we won't bother him anymore. They took me down to a courthouse. Finally, a man came out of another door and says, come with me. He doesn't say who he is or nothing. He just says, come with me. So I walk with him. And just to my left, as I go in the door, is another door with a big mirror on it. It's one-way glass. And there's a chair to the right, a big sofa chair. He takes that chair and turns that chair toward his facing the door. And then he tells me to sit in the chair. And he says, hold up, before you do that, face that wall, which is my left ear facing the door. And he says, take your right hand and pull your hair all the way over to the right. Now my hair is on my shoulders. Description that they put out for the killer is short haired with a dark medium length mustache. I've never had a mustache in my life. So what he wanted me to do was look like I had short hair to somebody who was behind the glass. I did not know this at the time, and it didn't occur to me. I was just passing their test. Supposedly, the man that had picked up the killer was behind the glass, and he was supposed to be identifying whoever it was that they had in the room. I was supposed to look like I was a passenger in his vehicle, so if he looks at me, he's looking at my left side. He was legally blind. But of course he was driving a car and I've always asked that question, how can somebody be legally blind and driving a truck? So what they did is they made me come in and look at the wall, pull my hair all the way over to the right. So it looked like I had short hair to a person that can't see that well. Eyewitness testimony is questionable and dangerous to begin with. But when William was telling me this story, I was shocked at the lengths these investigators took to match him with the description of the criminal. I have never in my career heard of an instance where a suspect was asked to alter his or her appearance to better fit an eyewitness description, let alone from a man who is legally blind. There have been huge advances in what we now know about eyewitness testimony and the problems associated with it since this case occurred, but I'm honestly shocked that this kind of procedure happened in my lifetime. Facts be known is the guy did not ID me, but they lied. They said that he did. And then it started to tumble from that point on. Within a matter of minutes, door slams open and a big, huge German Shepherd starts coming into the room. The dog's name was harassed too. 
he came over by me, sniffed all around me. It was kind of frightening. The officer pulled him back and says, how does it feel to be tracked by harass too? He walked out the room and never saw him again. The dog harass too was used to sniff on the paper that I wadded up. Then they supposedly wadded up four other pieces of paper, put it in a lineup, and harass too is supposed to have picked my piece of paper off of a shirt that the killer left in a truck. That's really what made me the suspect. Along with that faulty eyewitness testimony, this aspect of Williams' case, the use of a scent dog, struck me as an important aspect of the legal system. What scientific processes are police investigators using to find criminals? And what happens when that science is not used the right way? When I'm not working on this podcast or working on my own cases in court, sometimes I'm brought into our sister podcast, Up and Vanished. Fans of that show might recognize the next woman we spoke with. Tracy Sargent is a certified canine search and rescue specialist. After hearing about how William's case was led astray by a scent dog, I wanted to speak with Tracy about how she uses her canines and the ways in which they should and should not be used, particularly in criminal cases. My name is Tracy, Trace Sargent. I've been involved with canine operations for about 27 years. Currently involved in investigations and missing person cases, as well as production work. Question I get quite often is that, how do you make your dogs do this, Tracy? And I'm like, oh, I do not. I'm really the chauffeur, so to speak, to transport the dogs to the locations that we need them to search. And then we just let the magic happen. My dogs are specifically trained to find missing persons, both dead and alive, and that's all they do. They tell us two things every time that they are used, regardless of the case, whether it's a live person or a deceased person. Those two things are, they'll tell us where something is, and they'll tell us where something isn't. And it's interesting, Phil, when I started this, I was really blindfolded and, you know, focusing on finding what we're looking for. Through the years and my experience, I've discovered that knowing where somebody isn't is just as important and as helpful as where is somebody is. For a live scent dog, we all smell very unique and different to that dog. But when we die, regardless of our background, whether we're male or female, our demographics, where we live, it doesn't matter to the dog. Death is life's perfect equalizer human remain scent is human remain scent to the dogs, regardless of how long that person has been deceased. I asked Tracy what made dogs in particular a good resource for finding missing people. They have to have that keen sense of smell just to survive. Also, their body is actually designed in such a way that makes them the perfect scent detecting machine, so to speak. The way their brain is shaped and designed, their nose, their ears, their drive to want to use that nose, we live through our eyes. Dogs live through their nose. When you look at it from that perspective, it really is a different way of looking at the world. And I would say the biggest difference between them and, let's say, other animals that also have a very keen sense of smell 
is that bond and relationship that dogs want to have with us naturally. And that's what sets them apart. They are truly the epitome of man's best friend. In one part, it's a unique situation. They are a partner. They are part of the investigative team. They are also a very unique resource or tool in the toolbox that investigators use. However, dogs should not be associated with that's the only thing that this case is going to stand on. We are a very small part of this investigative puzzle that we're trying to put together. We, meaning myself, other investigators, law enforcement, the family, even the media. Whatever my dogs do or don't do, it's not, quote, a smoking gun, so to speak. It's simply part of the investigation. It should be based on the strength of the evidence and compounded by whatever additional evidence they have in addition to what the dogs do or don't do. Can your dogs identify someone in a lineup from evidence that's found at a crime scene? In other words, can they match a specific person with a specific item of evidence? I would say you can train a dog if it has the right drives and temperament and personality. You can train them for almost anything. So I would say as a broad stroke answer, yes, but it's not something that I do personally. My dogs aren't trained to do that, nor would I train my dogs to do that. Dog handlers and dogs themselves, everybody is different. How they approach something might be a little bit different, but nonetheless, the same amount of professionalism, ethics, and integrity and character and honesty, preparation, preparing yourself as a handler. That means mentally, physically, and the training, preparing the dog. And again, that means physically, mentally, and training. All of that is the important part of it. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. 
Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. After talking with Tracy, I felt like I had a better handle on how canines can be used as just one of many tools in an investigation. But I know from the cases that I see all the time that some science is junk science and it simply should not be used at all, or at least not in the way that it is commonly used in the criminal justice system. Some of this so-called science has become outdated. It's become debunked. I wanted to speak with an expert on the legal ramifications of debunked science, somebody who sees these types of cases all the time. This is Amelia Maxfield. I'm the forensic science specialist at the Pennsylvania Innocence Project. The bulk of our work is trying to rectify a wrongful conviction on the back end. My caseload is primarily flawed forensic science cases, cases where a person was convicted based on a science that either wasn't valid at the time or was used improperly. It's so hard to fix mistakes on the back end if we can make a difference on the front end in educating judges and juries and lawyers about these issues and in trying to keep unreliable forensic sciences out of court in the first place we can make a bigger difference in ensuring that flawed forensic sciences aren't being used in court. Forensic science developed in the law enforcement community, save for DNA testing, which was developed as an actual science. All other forensic sciences were developed as crime-fighting tools, not as sciences. These things were admitted in court for decades without anyone questioning whether or not they were valid. In 2009, the National Academies of Science issued kind of a landmark report looking at forensic science, and they found that everything except for nuclear DNA testing lacked scientific validity. Essentially, it undermined every forensic science except for straightforward nuclear DNA testing. So that even doesn't include things like DNA mixture analysis, which has some limits as well. I asked Amelia which forensic sciences are the most unreliable and just why some of these common law enforcement tools can be considered more subjective than scientific. 
any discipline where as a human is just looking at the features of one item and then looking at the features of another item and comparing them to determine whether they match or not. Things like bite mark, hair comparison, tire tread analysis, old school arson analysis, anything where you're just looking at a pattern. And that even includes fingerprint analysis. Fingerprint analysis and arson are the only ones since 2009 that have gone back and tried to validate. But traditionally, fingerprint analysis is just a person comparing two pictures of fingerprints and determining for themselves whether or not they match. I think if you polled the average criminal defense lawyer and average prosecutor, they wouldn't really know how a fingerprint is examined. They would assume it's like CSI and someone puts it into a fancy computer and then it spits out a match. That's actually not how it works at all. Working in a state lab is a grueling job. You have an extremely high caseload. You are not paid extremely well. And your access to continuing education and to proper training is pretty limited. Most people are expected to sort of learn on the job, whereas we should be training experts in a uniform and unbiased way. Most labs are in the control of the state. So even though individual analysts don't necessarily think of themselves as an arm of the prosecution, they really are part of the prosecution team. Their funding typically comes through the state and the district attorney's budget sometimes. We should have some sort of licensing body, something similar to the FDA, to test out emerging forensic sciences to be sure that they're valid before they're admitted in court. Many of these unreliable forensic sciences were first admitted in very high-profile cases. The first time bite marks were admitted in Florida was in the Ted Bundy case. The prosecution really needs a conviction, so they reach outside of the bounds of what the discipline can actually say and admit an unvalid discipline. And in a case like that, a judge is much less likely to not admit evidence that could convict someone because the stakes are higher. I think we need some sort of body to validate these disciplines as they emerge. Science inherently evolves. If you're going to be using evidence that changes and develops to secure a conviction, you have to be open to revisiting that conviction as the science or the evidence changes and evolves. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to 
bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Because so many of these wrongful conviction cases include flawed forensic science, there's a lot more to cover here, particularly, as Amelia mentioned, the problems with bite marks. But a perfect storm of circumstances came together in William's case that led to his wrongful conviction, and there's more to his story. So they take me and put me in a room with a bunch of police officers it's not like the television where they put you in a room and there's two guys come in and talk to you. And this is like five, six of them. They were all different places and they're all talking to me at once about different things. And I kept adamantly denying any involvement and I didn't know any answers. I wasn't involved. Finally, they said, will you take a lie detector test? And I said, sure, I will. So they put me in a jail cell, gave me this plastic mattress with no sheets, no pillows, no nothing. I go up to the lie detector, do everything he tells me to do. The chief investigator, he says, we got you, you're lying. I says, you got the wrong guy. I said, and I have anything to do with it. It must be something wrong with your machine. The results of polygraph tests or lie detectors are not admissible in court. And there's a good reason. I know from firsthand personal experience that it is possible to fail a lie detector test on purpose. It is possible to pass a lie detector test when you have lied, and it is possible to fail a lie detector test when you have told the truth. Polygraphs and lie detectors are simply unreliable, and the only people that I know who advocate for their use these days are the polygraph examiners themselves, the people who have an interest in the business surviving. Eventually, uh, they had gotten tired, and they were ranting and raving, and I kept putting up the same thing, and finally they said, okay, We'll offer you five years manslaughter. Don't worry about it. You'll do two years and you'll be on your own. You'll be free. I says, I'm not taking any deals. I didn't have anything to do with it. I'm not taking no kind of deal. Finally, they said, okay, we're going to put you in the electric chair. You're going to be arrested for first degree murder, felony murder. I said, you got the wrong guy. They locked me up and sent me to the county jail. Another commonality that we see among people who are wrongfully imprisoned is the situation where the government comes along and they offer an incredible deal if someone just pleads guilty. I was arrested on August 25th and I was convicted by November. I saw my lawyer twice. He asked me to write down what I remember about the night, 
The next time I saw him was to get a haircut. When William told me he only saw his lawyer twice before his trial, I was horrified. That's just not enough time to get the job done right. Now, I get that defense counsel, particularly public defenders, they're often stretched thin. But it's like going to a good barber with bad scissors. They may have the best of intentions, but if they don't have the tools or the time to get the job done, you're going to get a bad result. My experience in the trial was very aggravating for me. Not factual in any way. Most of the information came from people that I had given the police, people I might have been with on the night the murder took place. Their statements initially were that I wasn't involved, but progressively their statements got worse and worse as time went on. The next thing I knew, my friends that I told them I was either at their place or somewhere have me with blood on me in a shirt that was found in the truck. And also I was saying that I did something terrible. One of the most shocking things William told us was that the state's main witness was a woman William had been on a handful of dates with. She testified that William was at the scene of the crime, covered in blood, vocally admitting to the murder. It came out only after his trial was over that this woman was having a sexual affair with the chief investigator on William's case. But for his friends to also turn on him means that there were probably some other kinds of deals being made behind the scenes. He was promising her jobs and certain things. And they got the guys that were involved that were selling weed or doing this or that there that they would look the other way or that they wouldn't bother him with this if they just saw me in the shirt or just put me at a certain place. It only lasted four days, I think. Convicted me within 45 minutes. My father testified. My sister testified. And when I took the stand, I felt like now I was going to get the truth out. Fact is that I, I actually don't remember the night as far as it goes, you know, to put it down to pinpoints that I was right here at this point at this certain time. That didn't help the situation, but at the same time, it didn't make me a murderer either. I mean, I was being as truthful as I could. I mean, I guess if I was a murderer, I'd have an alibi, at least close to something. One question I'll always remember prosecutor asking me, she says, Mr. Dillon, do you mean to tell me that all the people here are lying and that you're the only one telling the truth? And I said, yes, ma'am, that's just the way it seems to me. And it took 27 years, but I proved it. I was sentenced to life with a mandatory quarter. I had to serve at least 25 years before I was eligible for parole. I had served every single day of maximum security. And I went up for parole after my 26th year. And it gave me a date that was like 30 years off. So I was never going to see any freedom. They weren't going to release me. William was exonerated in 2008 with the help of the Innocence Project of Florida and DNA testing from the shirt found in the witness's truck. He has been cleared of all charges after spending 27 years of his life locked away in a prison. There's so much to talk about in the area of forensic science, particularly junk science. So we're going to spend next week's episode covering more stories. Next time on Sworn. Our system in California here is probably one of the biggest prison systems in the world. 
We have more people in prison here than most countries. I kind of describe it like being the bottom of a well. You're looking up at this, you know you're innocent, you know what they're saying is a lie, but you can't get any representation that would stand up and present this. Better description would be jumping out of an airplane without a parachute. You know you're going to die, but you just keep flapping around anyway. Sworn is a production of Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio. Our lead producer is Christina Dana. Executive producers are Payne Lindsay and Donald Albright for Tenderfoot TV, Matt Frederick and Alex Williams for iHeartRadio, and myself, Philip Holloway. Additional production by Trevor Young, Mason Lindsay, Mike Rooney, Jamie Albright, and Hallie Beadall. Original music and sound design by Makeup and Vanity Set. Our theme song is Blood in the Water by Layup. Show art and design is by Trevor Eiler. Editing by Christina Dana. Mixing and mastering by Mike Rooney and Cooper Skinner. Special thanks to the team at iHeartRadio. From UTA, Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer. Ryan Nord and Matthew Papa from The Nord Group. Beck Media and Marketing and Station 16. I'd also like to extend a very personal and special thanks to all of our contributors and guests who have helped to make all of these episodes possible. You can find Sworn on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Sworn Podcast. And follow me, your host, Philip Holloway, on Twitter at PhilHollowayESQ. Our website is SwornPodcast.com, and you can check out other Tenderfoot TV podcasts at www.tenderfoot.tv. If you have questions or comments, you can email us at sworn at tenderfoot.tv or leave us a voicemail at 404-410-0441. As always, thanks for listening. Tell us what the Exoneree Band is. Uh, the Exoneree Band is a, a group of guys that have all been wrongfully convicted for numbers of years. And myself, uh, Raymond Tyler, uh, Antoine Day, Eddie Lowry, and uh, Ted Bradford. And all of those people were wrongfully convicted? Every one of them. Wow. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. 
Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive Budget Beach Finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Generations Riviera Maya Resort and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. 